If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we've got a bonus podcast for you about Henry V. Over the last week, Netflix film The King has been garnering a lot of attention for its portrayal of the medieval king and the 1415 Battle of Agincourt. To find out about the historical accuracy of the film and the history that inspired it, our content director Dave Musgrove spoke to Lauren Johnson, a historian and author specialising in the 15th and early 16th centuries. Uh, we're talking about the new next Netflix film The King, which is a retelling of the Henry V story following William Shakespeare's plays to an extent. Now, you don't have to have seen the film to enjoy this podcast, I hope, and we're not going to go into too much detail uh, about what's in it. Uh, and as a spoiler, uh, I don't think it's too much to say that uh, Henry V wins the Battle of Agincourt in the, in the film. Now, I'm joined by Lauren Johnson, whose uh, recent book Shadow King explores the life and death of Henry VI, the king who followed Henry V to the English throne, so obviously a topic that, uh, that she will know a lot about. Uh, Lauren's watched the film and done an excellent review of it for our website, historyextra.com. And as I said, the film charts the story of Henry V from the, the young philandering Prince Hal uh, up to the uh, serious war leader and political player, uh, Henry V. So I suppose the first thing for you, Lauren, is what did you, what did you take from the film in terms of its historical accuracy? I don't want to go into all the, all the things, you know, there are lots of things that I'm sure we could go into that, that were incorrect, but... In general, what did it get right from the historical record as we know it? Well, interesting. One of the things that is correct is that story of the kind of wastrel Hal turning into the responsible King Henry V. Because there's, although the, the earliest source, the Gesta Henrique Quinty, doesn't refer to this, there are sources within Henry's lifetime. Uh, and then by people who know him, who refer to the fact that he undergoes quite a change when he becomes king. He goes from being someone... Uh, who I think one one chronicler puts it, that he is a lover of Venus and of Mars in his youth, meaning essentially he got up to all sorts of hijinks as a young person. And then when he was crowned king in 1413, he changed and became more grave, more serious-minded about the business of government. 
And of course, there's a lot in the film as well about his military prowess, which certainly is true. He was an extremely effective, if very ruthless, commander. So this, the, the transformation story from young man to, to, to proper serious king, there is an element of, of, yes. of accuracy in that. So Shakespeare wasn't making that up? Not entirely. Obviously, being Shakespeare, he takes it the next step further. So he has Hal not, and I'm going to refer to him as Hal in the film just to make uh, sure. life slightly simpler. Uh, if I'm talking about Henry V, it's the real Henry V. Okay. Um, Hal in the film and in Shakespeare's adaptation of Henry V as well, uh, is hanging out with very low-born people. Um, you know, he's hanging out in Mistress Quickly's Inn with John uh, Falstaff and various other lowly individuals getting drunk all the time. Uh, and that's probably overstating it a bit. I mean, Henry V was still ultimately a prince. He was still going to hang out with his own milieu, I'd say, more than is represented in the film. Okay. And why, uh, why then... If there is truth in that story of, him, of there being a transformation, why would it have occurred, do you think? Would there have been, he, would he have felt that suddenly the weight of power meant that he had to take on a bigger responsibility? And, and yeah, you, and I suspect like? that. Probably it's it's been slightly overstated, as I say. Um, but I do think there is something transformative in that coronation ritual, in the movement from being a prince who is one of four princes, in fact, which is something the film doesn't really acknowledge, the fact he had several brothers, uh, to becoming a king who is completely alone, who has full responsibility for the kingdom and for every single person who is within it. That's a very different thing, I think. But um, what is interesting in the film is they have Timothée Chalamet playing uh, Hal, and he is a fairly young actor. I think he's in his early 20s, which reflects the fact that actually lots of these soldiers were effectively child soldiers. The nobility of England in this time were fighting from their teens or early 20s at the eldest, um, and I think that's that's quite nice that they play up that that aspect of him, that this is someone who is fighting from youth, uh, who is very well schooled in military matters. You, you mentioned his brothers there. I mean, part one of the film's lines is that he's kind of forced into, into being the king that he becomes because one of his brothers wants to fight in a battle that he's kind of, you know, he, he doesn't want his brothers to have to do. Any, anything in that? No, I mean, that's nonsense. <laughs> Absolute. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. They also have, and I hope this isn't uh, too much of a spoiler, but they have that brother being killed sort of off screen somewhere in Wales, which is completely made up. It's Thomas, Duke of Clarence, who goes on to fight for Henry for many years, in fact, uh, right through till 1421. He does die in battle, but it's the Battle of Bourget against the French and Scottish forces. Um, so it's a very different situation from him dying sort of on Henry IV's watch fighting a pointless Welsh war. But no particular fraternal pressure for Henry to step up from, from any of these brothers? No, I think these brothers were very... Uh, there, was, there was tension between Henry and Clarence, and it does seem Clarence was Henry IV's favourite. He was the second son after Henry V. Um, but no, I don't think so. They seem to have supported him. And it's one of the great advantages that Henry V has, actually, particularly in comparison with his son, Henry VI, is that Henry V has three other brothers who can fight for him in France. They can fight for him in England, if need be. They can take up government of England when necessary. So were anything to happen to Henry V, and bearing in mind he's wounded in the face in his first battle at the age of 16, uh, if anything happens to him, then the Lancastrian dynasty is absolutely fine because there's these other brothers who are experienced who can take things up for him. Okay. So just talking a bit more about Henry V, one of the most interesting 
uh, angles, plot lines in the film is this sense that uh, he's, uh, well, the young Hal is a pacifist. In some way, doesn't really want to, to get involved in these mm. martial activities. Just tell me about that. Well, that's the bit of the film that's most egregious to my mind. It, that is a departure from Shakespeare, because although Shakespeare makes a point of having uh, Henry V uh, justify his war in France, he still casts him as a soldier, I'd say. Uh, someone who gives, you know, stirring speeches before taking Harfleur, before Agincourt. Whereas, as you say, in this film, uh, the Hal character doesn't want to go to war. There's this completely fabricated stories of like an assassination attempt uh, against Henry and, and other things which may not entirely turn out to be quite what they first appear. Um, one interesting element that they do include in the film that bizarrely does have historical truth is the fact that the Dauphin of France sent Henry V tennis balls to mock him and sort of goad him into fighting. Uh, that is true. Uh, the Dauphin of France really did, or perhaps his father, Charles VI, send tennis balls and also a reference to soft cushions. They said, here you go, why don't you lounge on your soft cushions and play tennis balls because you're this young gadabout prince, you're not a real king. Um, but the notion that Henry V wouldn't want to go to war is absolutely absurd. He had to justify going to war, definitely. He had to seem to not want to, but he, he definitively did. He was a soldier before anything else. Uh, and that, again, is like a huge difference with his son, who is undoubtedly a pacifist, whose rhetoric is consistently about making peace with France. Henry V wants to fight to force peace uh, as opposed to negotiating for it. So, so the tennis ball element, that is, that is attested, that is yes. there's historical veracity. That's, that's very interesting, isn't it? So that does suggest that this sense that uh, Howell was seen as someone who wasn't a serious player then if that was if, if, if yeah. that was going to be something that would Absolutely. And interestingly, Henry V also challenged the Dauphin to single combat, which is something that happens in the film. Again, probably not really expecting it to be taken up, really just using it as yet another way of saying, look, I've tried everything I could, but now I've got to get loads of soldiers killed. Uh, so that's quite a standard uh, thing for a, a medieval prince to do before a battle. You've mentioned the Dauphin a couple of times there. Perhaps we ought to just say a little bit about, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly odd term to, to English language speakers, mm. the Dauphin. What does it mean who, who, and who is the uh, Dauphin? The Dauphin of France is effectively the equivalent of the Prince of Wales. He's the heir to the throne, effectively. Um, and in 1415, at the time of the Battle of Agincourt, that was a man called Louis, uh, the eldest surviving son of Charles VI. Uh, interestingly, whereas Timothée Chalamet is, is the sort of young uh, King Henry. Um, Robert Pattinson, who plays the Dauphin, is actually quite a bit older. The Dauphin of France was really just a teenager at this time, and he was sickly um, and stayed with his father away from the battlefield. He got nowhere near Agincourt. But in order to create a narrative of a very sort of simple, oh, look at this great big baddie over here, uh, the, the king has created this uh, peculiar Dauphin hybrid who looks a bit like an elf from Lord of the Rings <laughs> um, gone slightly wrong, who, who talks in the most horrendous French accent uh, and insists on doing this, even though Timothée Chalamet is fluent in, in French and therefore they could communicate in French. He's like, no, please talk English. It's ugly and simple. I think that actually was better than Robert Pattinson's accent. Thank you. Um, and so effectively the Dauphin is set up as this big bad who uh, makes absurd uh, threats <laughs> against the English. 
and is ultimately, oh, should I say, <laughs> is, is, I'm going to say it, he's uh, killed in the Battle of Agincourt, which again is uh, completely untrue. He did die in, a bit later that year, but not as a result of the battle. Okay, we'll come back to the French and French attitudes mm. to this um, to this film in, in a moment. Okay, so we've leapt on to the battle there. We've moved on from Prince Hal being this wasteful figure to being the, the, the warrior, uh, leading uh, the troops into the battle, or at least being there on the battlefield. Um, it's, a, it's a very uh, graphic and quite effective bit of uh, filmography, I think, and it's kind of based around this idea that it was really, really muddy and there's lots of knights in really heavy armour struggling to move around a, a, a small patch of field. Um, in, in, in the period of, of, of your book, uh, Henry VI's uh, life, there were lots of really serious, gory battles. How did you feel this battle scenes or weighed up to the reality of what might have been a 15th century battle? Um, I think in some ways, the Battle of Agincourt and the King doesn't quite go far enough. There's descriptions of Agincourt from contemporaries who say that the knights there, the men-at-arms, I should say, because when we imagine knights, we think of people on horseback and actually the English were all on foot and the French also. Uh, many of them were on fighting on foot too. There's descriptions of them being uh, in the mud up to their knees and sort of falling you know, face down in it and great piles of dead um, assembling in front of the English lines. Uh, and there was an element of that in the battle. There was definitely a sense of claustrophobia and there was a sense of muck. Um, but I think in I think it could have even gone further than it was. This was a completely horrific battle in which the French plan of attack was to like punch through the um the English lines basically with cavalry. And the English who were outnumbered about two to three, um, not quite the many tens of thousands, I think, that it is in Shakespeare. The English plan was basically to bombard them with arrows in order to sort of try and reduce the French lines, which ultimately worked. 15th century battles were, I mean, they were brutal, really. They, they were battles in which people were hacking and uh, hitting people in the in the face and the limbs. Um, one element, I would say, of Agincourt that definitely was a, a bit misleading was the, the complete greyness of everything. There was no real sense of, of how people moved at that time, which was very dependent on heraldry and banners and trumpets. And uh, those things are kind of associated with the French in the film and not with the English. But we know that Henry V was fighting under five banners by himself, never mind all of the other lords who were there who were also fighting under those things. Uh, so certainly, I think by the end of, of Agincourt, that sense of mud and desperation and misery is fairly accurate. Um, but it would have started off looking very different, I think, from the way it does in the film. I, I, I was quite struck by the by the battle scene and the way that, uh, as you said, you know, how how would people have identified their enemy? I assume there must have been a much bigger element of heraldry, or at least some mechanism whereby one could sit, you know, identify who's who yeah. you were supposed to be fighting against. Because it does, you know, it just boiled down to this horrible melee of people just. Um, people in armour punching each other in the face, which, which yeah. struck me as... I, don't, I mean, I've never worn a suit of plate armour. I, I would have thought that would be quite a challenging thing to... I mean, you probably yes. haven't worn plate armour either. No, I've, have, I've tried chainmail on. Yeah. That was quite uh, the experience. Uh, yeah, I don't think just punching people in the head was a big feature of the Battle of Agincourt. I mean, it's like I say, it's, it didn't quite go far enough. This is a battle where people were, uh, you know, the archers, after they'd finished with all of their arrows, they leapt into the fray with their hose around their ankles, wielding mallets, and were just smashing people on the head. 
uh, and stabbing them with knives. So it was incredibly sort of visceral, I think, actually, the, the fighting. Uh, and it's interesting as well um, that uh, Hal in this film uh, doesn't wear a crown at any point. In fact, I don't think there's a single crown throughout the entire film, which I presume was a, an aesthetic choice they made. Um, whereas we know specifically that Henry V wore this crown in battle, um, which had fleur-de-lis on it to emphasise the fact that he was rightful king of France, according to his own rhetoric. And that one during the battle, one of the fleurons on the, on the crown was actually knocked off because the fighting was so intense around him. Uh, and he was beaten to his knees before getting up again. Um, so, yeah, I think it sort of got maybe the, that tone of desperation right, but certainly, it, yeah, it wasn't really a medieval battle. And you, you just mentioned a point which we probably should have discussed a little bit earlier as to why uh, the English were even fighting in France. And as you said, so Henry's basically saying that he is the rightful heir to the, the French throne. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's a continuation of the Hundred Years' War. So it's the King of England saying, no, no, I should be King of France, actually. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a curveball that's just occurred to me. Um, as we talk about the, the graphic brutality of these, of these battles, um, and we think today about the impact of battles and warfare, um, throughout the, the, the 15th century, you know, the Battle of Towson is, is you know, the bloodiest battle in, in English history, isn't it? It's got mm. to describe it. Is there, is there any sense of, of the aftermath of that for people who've, who fought in those battles? Did they, you know, PTSD is obviously a, a modern term, but is there any sense that people struggle to come to terms with what must have been a horrifying experience? I'm sure there is, and especially within the religious culture of that time. The fact that so often you find memorials being put up and um, prayers for the dead in battles being um, uh, wished for by the people who were involved in them, chantry chapels and things like that. Uh, I'm not so familiar with it with Henry V, to be honest, but certainly with Henry VI, I think it's who never willingly fights in a battle, but finds himself in the middle of them on several occasions, as you say, during the Wars of the Roses. I think that had a profound psychological impact on him. Um, and I think part of the reason it has such an impact is because he's actually quite old by the time he gets to his first battle. Henry V, like I say, child soldier, I think they, they almost are steeled against these brutal experiences um, whereas Henry VI is 33 before he encounters what a battle is. And it's not Agincourt. It's not that sort of glorious fight against a bunch of knights. Instead, it's, it's a, a street battle through St Albans in which he watches people who probably aren't properly armoured being massacred in front of him. So I think, yes, there was a, a profound psychological impact. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You bow to the king, you don't look him in the eye. Uh, there are records of people just being on their knees in the presence of the king for hours at a time. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, now uh, moving on from the, from the warfare aspect of it, which is a, a big focus of this, uh, of this film. Um, but one of the other interesting uh, 
subplots lines in the film is the role of women. Um, and there's a, there's a couple of women in the film who, uh, I think... In, I think that's literally it. There's two women in the <laughs> there, film. There are. But they're in, 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 uh, interestingly, uh, as opposed to other films of this period, you know, of this genre, the women are seen as, in some ways, active agents. Mm. I.e., they say something and they're not just there to stand next to the, to the yeah. man in armour. Um, what role did women play in high politics at the time, if any? Uh, they definitely had a role in high politics, I would say. And we see it time and again throughout the Hundred Years' War because specifically these women are often the bridges between the English and the French. They're related often to both sides. So right from the early days of the Hundred Years' War, we have Philippa of Hainaut, for instance, the wife of Edward III, appealing for the citizens of Calais to be saved from the King of England's brutal punishment after Calais is taken. Um, later on, right at the other end of the spectrum, we find Isabella of Burgundy, for instance, in 1435, getting a payout from the French in order to persuade her husband, the Duke of Burgundy, to make peace with the French, who for 20 years has been his enemy. Um, Charles VI's wife, his queen, Isabeau of Bavaria, in the time of Henry V, is, a, is effectively the regent of France. She's running things for him because her husband suffers from mental ill health for so much of his reign. So women are hugely important. They do have quite specific roles. They are meant to be peacemakers. They are meant to be intercessors. They are meant to be agents who are negotiating between the different sides. Uh, and that's what we find them doing time and time again. Uh, and we see it, you know, right down through the ranks. You know, you see noble women negotiating the ransoms of their husbands to return from war um, or to make the most of ransoms for prisoners of war they happen to be looking after at the time, as the case may be. Uh, so, yeah, they are hugely important. The one thing in the film, which I think uh, you might have found a bit strange, uh, is the Catherine Valois meeting Hal and sort of presenting him with this. Did you say Catherine Valois? Ah, yeah. Catherine Valois being the daughter of Charles VI, a French princess, who goes on to marry Henry V and thus cement the uh, the treaty, basically, between yeah. England and France. Um, yeah, and she, her, her words to Henry V, they did strike me as um, a little odd in the way she, she says she wouldn't submit to him and uh, he needs to her, earn her respect, wording yeah. like that. Um, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, I think that is going too far. Much as women do have specific, uh, specific, much as women have specific political roles in this period, they they are roles that are still ultimately subservient to a king. They're superior to everyone else in the country, you know, king, queen, all the other people. Um, but it's very hard to imagine Catherine Valois saying, "No, no, I'm 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 exactly on the same level as you." Um, in part because, you know, at this point in time, she's quite politically disadvantaged. Her country has just been dragged through uh, five years of war, in fact. The film very much sort of jumps to the end uh, in terms of when this treaty is made. She's living in a war zone with her, her father, who is not entirely with it, with her mother, who's desperately trying to hold things together. There's no dowry, really. Um, and we know that Henry V didn't give Catherine Valois much political agency later in their relationship. We find other princely relationships where it is much more equal, I would say, but Henry V and Catherine Valois is not one, perhaps because she's a French princess and the war continues and it's seen as too dangerous to make her, for instance, a regent uh, during their son's reign. 
Sure. Yeah, the director does rather charge through that those last years, and I presume because he had to get to the end to uh, to get to get to the um, get to the, to the finale of the story. Yes, and also there's all of those inconvenient bits where, for instance, there's a six month siege in which Henry V starves hundreds of people to death at Rouen, which makes him seem a, li- a little bit less likable as a hero. Yeah, yeah, we'll probably come back to that again in a second. Um, just so, just um, going back to uh, to that conversation between the, uh, the the princess and and the and the king, it got me thinking. How would one have addressed a monarch in this period, either English or French? Because there's quite a lot of, of bits of action, bits of uh, um, uh, bits of dialogue in the film where uh, underlings, you know, lords or, or or princesses are addressing kings in in quite forthright mm-hmm. fashion. Which seems to me to be unlike. I don't know. I mean, would, would you have been if, if I was a an earl? Would I have gone up to the king and told him what to do, or would that have been unwise? No, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, that really struck me as well. Um, I think right until the end of the film, and again, I presume it's because it ties into this story of how he is becoming the king. Uh, no one really does anything uh, physically in relation to the king to show their respect. And this is an era when that stuff is hugely important. You bow to the king, you don't look him in the eye. Uh, There are records of people just being on their knees in the presence of the king for hours at a time. Uh, on that, certain that occasions. That would make for a good, good film, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, I mean, that would be quite boring. <laughs> Just people kneeling around a king while he reads a letter from an ambassador. Um, but certainly, yeah, the advice you're going to give him is going to be couched, therefore, in the most respectful terms. And even actually at times when there's rebellions happening or, uh, you know, kings challenging other kings to battle or, or uh, to war, whatever it might be, there's still the language is incredibly... Uh, respectful and reverent, depending on people's positions. So I think, again, the film, sort of in in trying to create that brutal medieval world, which is very violent and immediate, I think they just dispensed with a huge amount of what actually made the Middle Ages what they were, because they were a time when respect was phenomenally important. And to a certain extent, I think if you don't have that honour culture represented, chivalry doesn't make sense. And just going on to onto your topic of your book, Shadow King, um, uh, Henry VI, how was how would that respect and uh, reverence have have been affected when he was in his poorly stages? Because mm. surely he was. You know, well, tell us tell us what happened to him when he became ill. And, and yeah, happened. so Henry VI becomes king when he's nine months old, and he rules for about thirty years, uh, not entirely successfully. I think it's fair to say, and then. Um, in 1453, he suffers a 16-month-long uh, psychotic break, is what we'd call it today, where he doesn't respond to people, he doesn't talk, he doesn't move, really, as far as we can tell. And after that, he seems to continue, I would say, to have uh, mental health issues, probably profound depression. Um, and we don't know a huge amount about exactly how he was treated in those periods, but we do know that on one occasion the Lords of Parliament went to visit him and tried to get him to appoint a Chancellor, specifically in this case, Um, and that, again, they treated him with profound respect uh, face-to-face. Although he was sort of, this poor, very sickly king was hauled in front of them and while he just wanted to have his dinner, was bombarded with questions, that it was still consistently couched in respect for my Lord Kings, uh, you know, kneeling in front of him and so on. 
so I think, yeah, kingship was was still completely sacrosanct, even in a case where a king was a baby or uh, just completely mentally absent. Sure. So, OK, so that's really interesting. So that sense that the king is, you know, to mm. be respected and to be revered, that follows through um, despite whatever happens to Yes, to and I think it's, it's part of the reason that Henry VI isn't deposed for so long, despite being a manifestly rubbish king, mm. is because of the respect both for him as a person and supremely for the office of king. Mm. Okay, fascinating. Um, just uh, going back to responses to the to the film for a second. So one of the interesting there's, there's been lots of reviews. Some of them saying the film's not the greatest bit of filmography ever, um, but um, a lot of people have enjoyed it. Um, but the French reaction is quite interesting. Uh, to you know, there's been suggestions that it it basically extends jingoism. It, it extends this feeling that uh, you know the English and the French. Uh, during the during this period, were, uh, were, were were horrific enemies, which 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 is true, but it doesn't do anything to um, to help current uh, relations mm. between uh, between the two countries, and it doesn't truly reflect uh, what happened in the in the sense of Henry being this you know just a basic you know bog standard hero who doesn't do anything wrong, whereas there are as you've alluded to earlier some things that that perhaps he did do. So what's your feelings on that? How should we understand the film? I I can see both sides of this argument. I think in in order to streamline this narrative, um, clearly the filmmakers wanted to create a baddie who was just an arch villain, a bit like the sort of the Mel Gibson films of yore, where the English were the big baddies. You know, you would consistently have some toff wandering on and saying something snooty, then murdering someone. That's kind of the role that's being fulfilled here by the Dauphin on, on behalf of the French. And he is absurd. I mean, it's completely ridiculous, that entire character. To be honest, for me, that actually made the film a slightly more enjoyable because he was actually an interesting character, unlike most of the other people in it. Um, but I do also see that we are at a time when it's very important to be considering how we're expressing our national identity. And I think that Agincourt is sometimes held up as this, like, well, we've been brilliant in the past, we'll be brilliant in the future, which interestingly was a problem in the 15th century. It led to the collapse of the Hundred Years' War by the English because they were so convinced after Agincourt and a later battle, the Battle of Vernoy, that the English would just be able to turn things around in a single battle, that they stopped funding the war, they stopped supporting the garrisons in France, and then they were completely astonished when everything fell apart. Uh, so that sense of kind of like national complacency, I think, is is still an issue. And a lot of effort has been done. I know it was the director of the Agincourt Museum has been mm. particularly yeah, in France. A brand new museum. Yeah, has been particularly um, censorious about this film. And I can see why, because a lot of effort has been put into telling the narrative more accurately based on uh, considerable amounts of recent research into this battle and the information surrounding it. Um, so, I yeah, I think... We should be having that debate about how we're presenting people who are held up as national heroes. And often they are military and often they are male and they're pretty much always white as well. So, you know, who are the national heroes we should be talking about? How should we be discussing these people? Aren't there other people we could also be considering who may be more interesting rather than just retelling those kind of same old stories in in very simplistic black and white, in this case, quite literally, very monochrome film Mm. terms. Um, any names you'd throw into the into the mix that we should be thinking about more closely? Oh, well, there are just 
One of my great frustrations as a historian of the 15th century is we keep seeing things through Shakespeare. So we keep revisiting uh, Richard III, for instance, Henry V. Whenever we represent Margaret of Anjou, the wife of Henry VI, we present her as this sort of sort of scheming, manipulative figure. Um, and even recently, there was a, a play put on at the Royal Court, I think, which uh, was about Margaret of Anjou, but it was using Shakespeare. So it was using something that was 100 years out of date, rather than going back to the original information about her to, to examine who she was as a human being and how that worked within the context of society. Um, so Shakespeare, I completely understand it because he's a brilliant writer, although I would argue that Henry VI plays are, are quite bad. Henry V, brilliant. Henry VI, er. Um, it, I think it, that causes a lot of problems, to be honest. I think we really need to see the 15th century through 15th century eyes. Okay, so getting rid of Shakespeare, though, that's... Uh... Yeah, get rid of him! Sling him out! I've had enough! <laughs> You've said that on a... <laughs> um, so, I mean, but just thinking about uh, commemoration stuff, the, we had the anniversary of Agincourt um, a few years ago. That, that got quite a lot of publicity. Next year, 2020, will be the anniversary of the, of the treaty, Treaty of Troyes. Mm -hmm. I'm mispronouncing it. Um, do you think that will get any commemoration? And if so, what? how should that be remembered? It's a fairly significant event in the, in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Had there been no Treaty of Troyes in 1420, there would probably not have been such continued issues with the Hundred Years' War and with Henry VI thereafter, um, because it commits the English to defending the French crown that, in the Treaty of Troyes, is declared as their rightful inheritance. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hugely important. It's also interesting, I think, in terms of how we talk about peace and the fact that Henry V, who, as we've alluded to repeatedly, is this military uh, commander, also ultimately negotiated for peace. And it's strange that we don't commemorate the pieces quite as much as we commemorate the battles. You know, it took five years from Agincourt to get to a peace treaty. Why is it the battle that we remember? Because it wasn't actually quite as decisive as at first it suggested. You know, otherwise the treaty would have happened in 1415, not 1420. So, yeah, I think that should be considered. Also, next year, uh, anniversary of the Field of the Cloth of Gold, yep, 1520, 1520 yeah. uh, which is... Uh, again, a peaceful meeting between England and France and an attempt to create international friendships. And at this point in time, again, surely it's quite important for us to be considering international amity, I would argue. So we should make 2020 the year of peace and treaties. Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Again, and also we've had uh, a number of years of considering the impacts of World War I. Uh, I think people are already starting to consider the anniversaries with World War II coming up. Um, even though it's 20 years away. And I think we should be framing things more around peace and friendship because the whole point of surely commemoration is to re-examine how we consider things. It's not enough to go, oh, well, it's terribly sad that people died. How do we avoid that in the future? And one of the ways is perhaps by focusing more on peace and less on war. Okay. Last thing then, so uh, just taking things beyond the end of the film... Um, your book is, is on Henry VI. Um, if they'd extended the film for a, a, just a few more years, what, what might have happened uh, after, after the treaty? It would have been brilliant is what first would have happened. And I think actually Timothée Chalamet should play Henry VI because he's the sort of ideal waifish pacifist for it, I would argue. 
if the film had continued, it would have been slightly miserable for a little while because after the Treaty of Troyes, in which Henry V marries Catherine Valois, Henry continues to fight against uh, the French and actually dies while on campaign in France two years later, leaving behind a nine-month-old son, his only child who he has never met, who becomes immediately King Henry VI of England, and also the rightful King of France fairly shortly thereafter. Um, but it takes many, many years of effort to try and get Henry VI crowned King of France, Eventually, when he is crowned, it doesn't end peacefully. And in fact, under Henry VI, the war uh, against the French is lost in really quite catastrophic fashion, leading ultimately to Henry being deposed in England as well. So it's a much more exciting story, I would argue. <laughs> much more politicking. And uh, again, some very interesting women. Okay. And that, of course, is the story told in your book, uh, Shadow King, uh, is the subhead of the life and death of Henry Sidney. Uh, and that's out now. Uh, is it in paperback yet? Or is it will on? be in paperback in January. Okay, great. And what are you working on after that? Have you got another book on the go? Uh, yes. Well, back to my 15th century women. I'm working on Margaret Beaufort. Ah, okay. Yes, trying to put her in context uh, with the other women of her time. Okay. Another fascinating woman. And yeah, so we should we should have a bit more on the on the women of the 15th century and that would make some some... Slightly more nuanced coverage. Okay, Lauren, thank you so much for that. Um, a very interesting discussion, uh, and thank you very much. Thanks. That was Lauren Johnson. The King is available to stream on Netflix now. For plenty more on Henry V and the real history behind the film, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back as normal on Thursday when Jill Lepore will be discussing the history of the United States.